Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 70 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions combines state-of-the-art shared storage hardware with intuitive media management software and powerful integrations for Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com and start creating amazing content faster. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Holfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Walter Murch, ACE. Murch is one of the few editors where saying his name is enough to let you know what he's done and providing a filmography or list of awards seems redundant, but Murch was nominated for an Oscar for sound and won a BAFTA for editing for the conversation. He was nominated for another Oscar for editing Julia. He won an Oscar for sound and was nominated for an Oscar for editing Apocalypse Now. In 1991, he was nominated for two separate Oscars for editing Ghost and The Godfather Part II. He won a Career Achievement Award from the Cinema Audio Society, won a BAFTA, an Eddie, and two Oscars for sound and editing on The English Patient, was nominated for an Ace Eddie for The Talented Mr. Ripley, was nominated for a BAFTA, an Eddie, and an Oscar for Cold Mountain, won an Eddie, and was nominated for an Emmy for Hemingway and Gellum. That doesn't include his other work, including the re-edit of Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, doing sound for the 1970 Rolling Stones documentary Gimme Shelter, writing George Lucas's first film, THX 1138, and cutting other films, including The Unbearable Lightness of Being, The Godfather Part Three, Jarhead, The Documentary Particle Fever, and Tomorrowland. His IMDb page lists 66 films over six-plus decades. Today, we're discussing his latest work, Four Years in the Making, a documentary called Coup 53. Walter invited me to see it at a small investor screening in San Francisco in December of 2019. To understand our conversation, I'll explain a little bit about the documentary before we start the interview. The title refers to the overthrow by the British government with help from the U.S. of the democratic government of Iran, seemingly purely to protect British oil interests. The film is led on camera by the director, British-Iranian citizen Taghi Amirani. At our investor screening, Mr. Amirani surely knew what he had in the participation of Merch and made him the star of the screening. But Merch also actually appears in the film as the editor of the film with several scenes shot in his editing room. In addition to the actual coup and fallout from the coup, the film uses footage from a previous 1985 documentary, End of Empire. But in using that footage, they discovered a bombshell revelation by a former MI6 spy had been edited out of the original documentary. In fact, his entire appearance and multiple incredibly damning sound bites were all missing from the documentary. And, even though they had all of the original footage and filmed interview, this spy, Norman Derbyshire, was completely missing from the raw footage. And though there was a transcript found of the interview, the actual sections used in the film had been cut out of the pages, like with an X-Acto knife, leaving page after page with large redacted sections of the best part literally cut out of the pages. He had been scrubbed clean. But eventually, a single complete transcript of his interview was located, turning the search for Derbyshire's footage and transcripts into something of a detective mystery, which is played out in the documentary, much of it in Murch's cutting room. Because of the revelatory nature of Derbyshire's missing soundbites and interview, Amirani recruited Ralph Fiennes to play Derbyshire, 
reading the missing comments, filmed in the same hotel room at the Savoy that the original had been recorded. It's quite a film. That night, I interviewed Merch for more than two hours. Those interviews consisted of me asking about the editing of five films Walter asked me to watch, and another series of questions I generated asking for clarification of things Merch had said in his book In the Blink of an Eye, and in Michael Andaccia's book in which he interviews Merch called The Conversations. There was another entire series of questions I presented to him, posted by members from the editing social group Blue Collar Post Collective. All of those interviews will be presented in the coming weeks. Trust me, it's a treasure trove for Walter Merch fans and editors in general. Thank you for your patience in letting me set up this interview about Coup 53, which I recorded in January 2020 over Skype with Merch in London, where he's been editing the documentary. It's so wonderful to talk to you again. How are you? Very good. Are you feeling very at home in England? Yeah, I'm uh, one of those people who finds it uh, interesting to be wherever I happen to be. Um, so I'm not uh, overly attached to one place. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Coup 53. I saw it with you in uh, San Francisco. Uh, one of the biggest questions I've got about it is, what was your input about being part of the story? You're in the film. Yeah, it grew like the film as a whole. There was not a script to begin with. We just had an increasingly huge amount of material. And as the story began to condense, it began to center around the mystery of why this man was cut out of the film that was made in 1985, where, where he... Uh, admitted that not only the British were involved in the coup, but that he was the one who was directing the coup and that he was tangentially involved in the murder of the chief of police of Tehran, who was a, a general in the army, uh, which was a kind of Khashoggi-like torture murder situation. So it got kind of grisly. Uh, what he had to say, and for, I guess, understandable reasons, when MI6 found out about it, they asked his whole interview to be pulled from the program, and it seems that the producers of the program also had to deny that this had ever happened. So it's, kind of, it's what, what's called a super injunction. You have to do what they say, and you can't say that they asked you to do it. Because this all came out of our exhumation of, of these outtakes from 35 years ago, and the forensics of it had a kind of a cinematic quality to it. And um, that dovetailed with the fact that Tagi, the director, was involved in telling the story, that early on, we both decided that it was such a contentious topic that we couldn't pretend to take a kind of God's eye view of what the truth of this was. It had to be told from a specific point of view, which was his point of view as a split Iranian British citizen. He has dual uh, passports and he, until the age of 15, grew up in Iran and from that point on has lived in uh, the United Kingdom. So he kind of can understand both points of view. So he appears in the film, and because of this cinematic quality to the mystery, I 
show up in a couple of scenes as well. It's kind of played as a as a detective story. Yeah, there's a detective aspect to it, absolutely. Uh, and that, again, that emerged out of the, the process of making the film. At the beginning, we thought it was just going to be kind of a history channel, here's what happened story. But when we uncovered this uh, transcript, one thing led to another. And there's still lots about the story that, that we don't know at the moment. Some things have unfolded subsequently to finishing the film, and uh, we expect even more to come out once the film gets distributed. Some of the structural questions that I have are kind of the balance of the detective story part of it. You know, discovering things is a lot of the documentary, but then, of course, the rest of the documentary is what actually happened right. you know, that you're investigating. Talk to me about trying to balance those two aspects and figure out you know, where you should be at any point in the story. The real focus of the film from Tagi's point of view and from my point of view was to tell the story of what happened in the coup in 1953, how it came about, what happened on, the, on a day-by-day basis, these four, kind of four days in August, and then what are the downstream ramifications of it? The mystery part of it, uh, the, the detective part of it, got us to the point that we were able to get uh, Ray Fines to come in and channel this individual, Norman Derbyshire, uh, and in a sense recreate the interview that was tangent was ostensibly given in 1983. Had we learned more about what happened in terms of the mystery of why he was removed, but we just kept running up against a brick wall. People said, we don't remember, no, that never happened. Um, and we just simply had to get on with telling the story. Uh, so there were, we, we end the film with a couple of questions, which, which have to do with where is that original interview? We don't know. Uh, we don't know really why it was, or, or we don't know how it was taken out. We have a couple of testimonies about it. We didn't want the film to become just the mystery of this, uh, of the uncovering of this uh, part of the story. The uncovering of the mystery is interwoven in the first half of the film, but once Rafe is kind of in place as Derbyshire, there's a couple of forays into the the mystery, the whole uh, story of how did this story get leaked to the Observer newspaper? Who was responsible for that? Again, we don't know the answer to that question. Certain things are going to, as I said, are going to come out once the film gets distributed. There's going to be a reaction from the people involved who are still alive. And uh, we're, we're making a kind of a coup 53.1 half hour <laughs> summation of things that happened after the making of the film. How did you start to organize this massive amount of material? I created four timelines, each of them about three or four hours long. One of them was simply nothing but talking heads, the experts, the uh, Stephen Kinzer, Ervand Abrahamian, uh, David Talbot, uh, Malcolm Byrne. We call that TBAC. Uh, Talbot, 
Abrahamian, Byrne, and Kinzer. And, <laughs> and it was simply nothing but them, in a sense, talking to each other, because Tagi asked each of them more or less the same kinds of questions. So I was able to, at a certain point, take out his questions and just have them interweave with each other, because each of them had different ways of talking about what happened. And they knew different things. Uh, each of them contributed a, a different facet to the diamond, so to speak. Then I did the same thing with all of the End of Empire archive material, which is uh, which we digitized. And End of Empire was the original documentary. By that the was the original Granada television program made in 1985. And we had access through the BFI to all of the outtakes from that program. These are people, all of whom are now gone. Uh, who, and so we had them talking about the events. And then I did another one, which was all of our Iranian voices who are still alive, who were involved in the events of 1953. And then I did the same thing for all of the archive material. So out of that uh, tapestry, I guess, uh, then the in a sense, uh, it was making a carpet out of these various uh, threads, uh, through lines, jumping from one to the other. And how did you build those four sequences? Uh, did you try to do them somewhat chronologically? or were Yeah, they... more or less chronologically, yes. Then, uh, yeah, the interesting thing would be trying to figure out how you weave those through lines together. Right. Once I had done that, that produced like an eight and a half hour timeline. <laughs> that was back in June of 2018. We had that. And at that point, we were wondering, is this a Ken Burns type history of Vietnam? Is it a four or six part series? Or are we going to try to condense it down into a feature length film? As it turned out, we didn't have the, uh, the financial or the time resources to do the, the whole eight hour bit. And also it was right around that time that Ray Fiennes agreed to come on. And he's such a kind of a gravitational uh, attractor that once he was in the film, the film really wound itself up uh, around him uh, being Norman Derbyshire. You chose to cut this in premiere. What about premiere suits either you or suits this project in general well it was a it was an exploration i you know i i began digital editing using the avid and then after about 10 years i switched to final cut and then final cut did what they did in 2011 and after that i jumped back and forth between avid and Final Cut as a, as a as kind of a zombie program. On Tomorrowland, I was editing using Avid. And when this project came up, I thought, well, I'm interested in the different uh, dialects, I guess, the different languages that each of these editing systems had. And I had never used Premiere. And uh, so I, it was a way of investigating the program. You don't really know a program until you've actually kind of gotten your hands into it and uh, worked on a film with it. And so I just, I decided to do that. Uh, was Particle Fever on Avid? Particle Fever was Final Cut 7. Ah, okay. 
by that time it was already two or three years uh, into zombiehood, and it was bumping up against the 32-bit ceiling frequently. Did you use your storyboard methodology on this film? In, in terms of the images or, or cards? The cards. Uh, yeah. In fact, you, you see it in the film. Uh, you know, some of those scenes are in the editing room. You see these colored cards up on the wall. That was how Tagi and I wrote the, the original eight-hour timeline, was thinking about what things are essential scenes for this story in its biggest version. And then I would cut a little card and decide on the right color and decide on the right size. And then up on the board it would go. And then once we had all of them in a provisional structure, then we started moving them around, seeing how we could better that structure. And then at a certain point, you just kind of leap off the diving board and start putting stuff together. You clarified my question about images or cards. So on some films, you actually take stills and then on this. Yeah. And I, I, I did this also, you know, when material would come in, I would just, you know, drop little markers on frames that really seem to represent something essential about this particular shot or about this particular sequence. Ironically, the whole uh, origin of this idea was when I was doing preparatory material on The Right Stuff, Phil Kaufman's film back in 1981 or two. And what we were doing was collecting all of the archive material that was ultimately used in that film. And uh, rather than sit there and take notes, I thought, well, why don't I just take pictures of it? Of course, back in those days, this was pre-digital, so I was actually taking photographs uh, of the film itself on a light box and then developing those pictures and putting them up on the wall. This idea of doing that arose out of a documentary situation because Phil was very interested in uh, the right stuff and also in unbearable lightness of using documentary footage and integrating it with the story itself. Your methodology also includes, uh, you, you just alluded to it, that the cards are different sizes and even sometimes different shapes or that the cards are turned. Can you describe that or why you do that? If you think about the counterexample, imagine that the cards are all three by five cards and they're all white. When you walk into the room in the morning, you're looking at a, a snow flurry, as Donald Rumsfeld did, a, a bunch of snowflakes. It's just a bunch of similarly sized rectangles. So to know what it is that's on those cards, you have to actually go up to them and read what's on the card. By using colors, you're, you're talking to a different part of the brain. Um, and the colors mean different things about, to me about the emotional content of the scene. And if it's a big scene, then it tends to be a bigger card. If it's a kind of connective tissue scene, then it's a, as thin as I can make it. If it's what I call a pivot scene or an, an elbow scene, meaning a, a series of scenes reaches a point where things suddenly change because of this new scene, then I make that scene just into a, a diamond shape that graphically says 
this is a pivot scene. Things are leading up to this scene, and after this th scene, things are not going to be the same as they were before. And, you know, in, a, in any film, there are probably maybe six or seven of those diamonds. But I guess the direct answer is when I come in in the morning and I, the first thing I see is a wall of color, it communicates something to me in a wordless way uh, that every time I do it, I learn something more about it. What are some of those colors, probably random, but what are some, can you give us some examples of the colors you use? Well, just pretty much as you would expect, a, a scene that has uh, emotional intensity or violence tends to be at the red end of the spectrum, yellow or red. Sometimes I combine two colors in the same card. There's a, uh, a border, which is one color, and then the center of the card is a different color. Uh, things that are more contemplative uh, or more informational tend to be at the cooler end of the spectrum. I don't spend a great deal of time thinking about it. Otherwise, you'd spend all your time doing cards and not doing the film. So it, it's really a pretty quick gut level answer to, well, what color shall I make this card? Oh, I think red with a little yellow. Okay, that's it. And, uh, you know, I, once I decide that, I don't, I don't reconsider it after that point. But then you're using those colors to kind of go, oh, man, I've got four red cards right next to each other. Yeah, no, exactly. I remember working on The English Patient. The desert was red and yellow, and the monastery was gray and uh, blue. Anthony and I would say, well, there's a whole big blue section. We've got too much blue here. Let's see if we can uh, you know, intercept it with a little something from the desert. And, you know, it's just exactly the same kind of decisions you would make if you were doing a painting. And you would say, oh, I think it needs a touch of red here, except a film is something that exists in time. But when you look at a whole series of cards, you're seeing the whole film in a, in a single flash, which is a whole other interesting uh, way of thinking about it. In the conversations which you talked about with him, you talked about how editing is similar to the writer's brain when you're trying to organize things. That sounds very. That sounds like very similar kind of writing, writing-ish thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll return in a moment with more from my discussion with Walter Murch. Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 70 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions combines state-of-the-art shared storage hardware with intuitive media management software and powerful integrations for Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com and start creating amazing content faster. Let's face it, we always need more storage for our media and projects, but sometimes having storage isn't enough because the more you have, the harder it is to find your files. Studio Network Solutions understands that. That's why their EVO shared storage servers provide industry-leading performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing and also include an entire suite of features designed to help you organize and manage your media. Every system comes with built-in software so you can search, tag, and preview all your storage, backup tools so you always know your media and projects are protected, and integrations for Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid Final Cut Pro 10 
all included for free with your EVO shared storage server. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get 10% off of a new EVO system by going to studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and signing up for an online demo. If you're tired of rummaging through a mountain of drives to find your files, it's time to give your storage an upgrade. So before you add another drive to the pile, visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. We now return to my discussion with Walter Murch. Do you feel like you're exercising different muscles when you're cutting docs than when you're cutting a scripted narrative? Yeah, particularly at the, at the, in the early stages of that because of this writing aspect of it. When you're working on a scripted film, you are more in the position of being kind of a musical interpreter of what is written. You know, you're the, the pianist playing the, the concerto and your contribution, particularly at, in the early stages when you're assembling the film, is I think I'm going to land hard on this chord and I think I'm going to dance through this section. So you're playing all of the notes, but you're deciding as an editor how to play those notes in an interpretive way. Whereas on a documentary, you are deciding what notes are going to get played in the first place. So it's a hybrid form. You're definitely writing um, in the sense of creating something that did not exist beforehand but you're not doing it with words on a page you're doing it with colored pieces of paper and with little symbols on a screen that turn into a timeline you've argued that uh, every documentary film editor should have a writing credit is that true yeah no i i, I absolutely feel that uh, having done it it was interesting in submitting to festivals they would not credit the editor. They say, we, we don't do that. We credit the director and the writer. If there is a writer, the preference is just to credit the director, but sometimes we credit the writer, but we never credit the editor. And for a documentary, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a, that's a silly decision really knowing what it takes to edit a documentary film. It's an odd misunderstanding for a film festival committee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I, I think it'll change over time. I mean, the onslaught of documentaries over the last 15 or 20 years is just incredible. You know, since the beginning of the, the digitization of the media, both uh, documentaries and animation have had this huge uh, surge of creativity as the result, direct result of, being digitized and you know if, if I could talk to myself when I was at film school 50 years ago and say here here's the landscape in 2020 I, I think the the emergence of animation and documentary w would have surprised me the most because in the mid 60s both of those forms were present but they were in a, a lull in their evolution do you think it's because of the digitization has also created a de democratization? Yeah, it, it's also just given, given us new chisels with which to make the sculpture. You know, with Coup 53, we had 532 hours of material. In film terms, that would have been impossible to try to wrangle that. It, it would have amounted to, I don't know, 
16 tons of 35 millimeter film, which wouldn't have been possible. <laughs> that's a lot of that's a lot of stuff. That's for sure. I was with you when you were they were setting up the screening room for the film, and you had a decibel meter with you. When you're editing, are you as fastidious with your monitoring levels, or was that just yeah? Yeah, tell me a little bit about. No, no, no. Yeah, no. I I have a I I check the levels every week or so to make sure nothing is drifted, and I I use that little Radio Shack meter. It's a it's a wonderful cheap but very effective way to, to get pretty exact calibration. I, I edit in a 3.1 environment, so you have to make sure that all of those channels are balanced against each other. And then that makes the, the exporting uh, to the mix stage very transparent. If you've made sure that your monitors in the editing room are correct, then you can rubber band the music, which is, you know, I was rubber banding volume graphing all of the stems of the music and then we simply exported each of those stems and they came into the board in the mix and the music mixer only has to moderate the overall level the music mixer doesn't have to chisel around each of the the words or in the narration or the sound effects so that's already been taken care of were you uh, temping with stuff as you went, or did you have the composer as you were going? Talk to us a little bit about music. It was temped. It was temped. Robert Miller, the composer, when we brought him on board, we showed him the temp music, uh, which is same thing that happened on Particle Fever. He he also did the music on Particle Fever, and uh, you know he's he's a uh, very talented composer and doesn't mind in fact, enjoys the dialogue with the temp score. Some composers don't, you know, don't want to do that. But in this case, given the film and given the personalities of the people involved, this this, this was a very transparent way to work. What were some of the things that you temped with? How did you dis- determine that kind of uh, palette of music? You know, it's uh, it's a mystery to me. You know, I have access to some music libraries, and it's the equivalent of what people do or used to do when they go dousing for water. You know, you, you grab hold of a, a, a stick in the shape of a Y, and you start wandering around the landscape. And when you feel a tug, you think, I'm going to dig here. You know, why I decide to use a particular piece of music, I... It's it's a mystery to me, but I'm I'm good at it. I guess my intuitions are good, and, uh, and you know, of course, you're always course correcting as as you as you evolve. But the basic process is um, all all of the music I used on Ku fifty three was new to me. I mean, I wasn't oh yeah, I, I wasn't reusing cues that I've used in the past at all because of the, the subject matter. I was tending toward the uh, kind of a Middle Eastern sound or a, a fusion sound of Western and Eastern, which is, again, what we tried uh, in discussions with Robert. That was where we wanted him to go, was to find a way to fuse West and East. Were a lot of those music choices things that were from film, or did you go with just interesting things you were listening to on CDs and the radio and classical the latter part it, it, they're not film things do you feel like that's more of a narrative thing that you're trying to find other soundtracks 
Um, yeah, again, it's, it's very, I mean, I started doing this on THX 1138, um, and I temped the music for that whole film, uh, using mostly classical music, but, uh, slowing it down and making it go backwards and, you know, distorting it. When we showed the film to Lalo Schifrin, he said, I love this temp, uh, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to transcribe the temp note for note, and I'm going to recreate it with an orchestra. There was one cue that it was an exception to that, but in fact, the, that's what he did. And it was it was thrilling and weird to go to the recording session and see this orchestra at Warner Brothers performing note for note a temp that I did, except I know that if you take the opening of THX and play it backwards and speed it up four times, it's Pergolesi from the 15th century. So. <laughs> That's great. Uh, tell me, uh, I, one of my questions, which you've already kind of proven wrong, was about when you were building Coup 53, did you build little stories and then build those smaller stories into a larger whole? You kind of talked about this tapestry idea. Did you build a uh, what I call a radio cut or the bones of the documentary and then cover it with with visuals or was it more writing and then figuring out oh we need to make this visually interesting or were you doing that as you went The visually interesting part I, I think would be what we did with animation uh, in the film that uh, there we had we had the radio play so to speak which was the testimony of the people who were there when the coup was actually happening. But, uh, you know, in 1953, there were no iPhones. So uh, there was no film of that event. Whereas if something like that had happened today, as we know from watching the news every day, these kind of events are covered by a thousand different cameras. Um, and you just have to simply find a way to get access to those, what people are filming. That's sort of what happened on uh, Unbearable Likeness, where we did the coup, uh, the, the Russian invasion of Prague using documentary footage. Uh, but that was 1968. So in 15 years, cameras had shrunk to the point that, you know, student, students could go out and film the Russians invading Prague. Uh, but that was not the case in 1953. So how are we going to make it visually interesting? And that was the, the idea emerged to do this kind of oil painting animation that would uh, not try to recreate the events itself, but to invoke what might be going through the mind of the person as they were telling the story. If you could do an fMRI of their brain as they're recounting these events, maybe that's what it would look like. Did the structure of the documentary or did your idea change when uh, Fines came on to, to do this reading? Because otherwise you've got this fascinating information, a bunch of transcripts that had been discovered, but you had no visuals to support them. Right. Talk to me just about how, you know, you're, you're looking at these incredible transcripts and going, well, how do we, what do we do with this? Yeah, well, it, it evolved through some stages. We went through the 14-page transcript and did what they did back then in the mid-80s, 
we said, oh, this is good, this is good, we can build something out of this, and then had a man come in and uh, just read it technically. Once we knew that Rafe might do it, I used stills of Rafe to indicate where he might, we might actually see him. And then ultimately Rafe himself came in and then his actual performance replaced those sections of the film. But was there a plan before you knew you had him about, well, hey, what are we going to do with this? Um, no, just we, we knew that we have to find somebody to read this and we didn't know who we were going to get but we knew we were going to get somebody. And so we just had to start somewhere as crude as it was. That's how we got started. And then luckily, uh, Rafe said yes. And we were able to get him for an afternoon uh, in this location and the Savoy hotel. Is there anything that you do to try to keep yourself from being overwhelmed? Because I mean, this was an enormous project. It probably grew, but, at the beginning, just to say, I don't even know where to start. What do you do psychologically? There are a lot of nights when I would wake up at three o'clock in the morning saying, what am I doing? <laughs> oh, you know, how can this, how can we get this? You know, I add it on top of the fact that I don't speak Persian. So, you know, how are we going to do that? We had to uh, go through a, a winnowing process where Tagi would do a pre-select of sections that were good and then those sections were subtitled we had a graduate student come in to subtitle them then i would just start working with that material so it, that was another added thing which is uh, we're you know 30 percent of the film is in a language that i didn't understand to begin with and it's such a complicated and very contentious story you know it's the old thing of, you know, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a sing single step. You just say, well, uh, once we begin, that reduces the burden by so much. And every step you take after that, it gets easier and easier to deal with it. It's still challenging, but, you know, it, it's, it's not a unique thing. I think every documentary and, you know, every writer who ever puts sits down in front of a computer to write a story, uh, faces the same thing. Uh, where do I begin? It's such a big topic. One of the things that I, w I remember being a revelation to me, uh, f talking to one of the first documentary film editors I was ever able to talk to, was that they said, oh, I sent my director out to get these shots. I was amazed at the footage they had, and they're like, oh, no, I asked for that stuff. Right. Is that something that you... Uh, that you did, that you got to a point where you said, oh, you know what we really need here? We need you traveling in a train through Iran or whatever. Were there, were there moments where you said, we need something here and this is what I think we need? Yeah, but very, very few. Uh, Tagi is just an inveterate filmer, filmer of things. So, I mean, that is how we got to 532 hours, <laughs> is that, you know, a, a lot of the film was shot with an iPhone using Filmic Pro in 4K, you know, on the iPhone. He shot so much stuff that there was always something that I could go to. And occasionally I would say, you know, it might be good if we, you know, get a more detailed thing of, of this. That the whole idea of sliding the uh, cut-up transcript together with the complete transcript, uh, 
that was one of my suggestions of, of how to how to visualize the good sections of this transcript. That was like I believe that when we did that screening in San Francisco of the film, like people gasped. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when you see this, when you see the transcripts slide through each other, these cutout holes, right, and they match, you're like, oh, wow, that's really cool. I mean, it's very simple, but simple things are sometimes very effective. The idea of weaving four through lines, four different sequences, and building from that is really interesting. Right. I mean, we 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 literally said this is like making a Persian carpet because it's a Persian story, and you know, if you think of each of these lines as a a thread uh, in the carpet, that's how you make a carpet. And so we frequently thought of the film as a patterned carpet that had that kind of intent visual and uh, thematic density to it that a carpet does. You didn't color code those, those four sequences, did you? So that you could see them as how, how often one was woven into another. I, I didn't, I, 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 now that you mention it, I, I could have done, but I, in, in fact, I didn't do that. That would be really fascinating to see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, Walter, thank you so much for giving me so much okay, of your Steve, time. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. And, uh, sure. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. And be sure to check out my other podcast of interviews from Sundance with the editors of the latest indie films. Thanks again to my guest, Walter Murch, ACE. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. Also, subscribe to this podcast and make sure to tell a film-making or film-loving friend.